take your Bibles and let's go back to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. This morning we'll pick up where we left off in verse 18 and continue on through verse 26 this morning. A young man once approached the Prime Minister of England and said, Sir, I would appreciate your giving me a few minutes of your time. I would like to study law. Yes, the great statesman said, and what then? Then, sir, I would like to gain entrance into the bar of England. Yes, young man, and what then? Then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament in the House of Lords. Yes, young man, what then? pressed the Prime Minister. Then I hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man, and what then? Then, sir, I hope to retire and take my life easy. Yes, young man, and what then? he tenaciously asked. Well, then I suppose I will die. Yes, young man, and what then? The young man hesitated and said, I never thought any further than that, sir. Looking at the young man sternly and steadily, the wise statesman said, young man, you still have more to consider. Go home and think life through. What are you living for this morning? Where have you placed your treasure? Where are you investing your life? What are you living for that will shape your eternal future? Picture your existence as this line that extends into eternity. And at the beginning of the line, there's just a dot. Maybe I've seen this illustrated with a a very long rope. And maybe you could think of that rope as extending from here all the way to that wall. And at the beginning of the rope, there's just one little piece of tape. That dot, that piece of tape, is our lives now. How are we living that will impact the rest of that line, that rope? Our lives, that that dot, that piece of tape, our lives are brief, they're momentary. How we live now and invest our lives for Christ affects what happens along the rest of that infinite line. We worry so much about maybe just a tiny bit further down the line. Do we ever give ourselves to think about the rest of that piece of rope? Jesus tells the story of the rich fool in Luke 12. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The rich man then in his foolishness and pride says within his own heart, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What are you investing your life in? What do you treasure most?
That's what this text calls us to consider carefully. So let's look at Paul's words beginning in verse 18. The last part of verse 18 we'll read down now through verse 26. This is the word of our God to us, his people. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice. Notice there's now a shift in tense. It's future looking. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, He's saying, I need this courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed. I'm pressed in between. My desire is to part, to depart, and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's ask for his help as we consider this text together this morning. Our gracious God in heaven, we ask that you would humble us before your word. It is our authority. It is sufficient to change us. It reveals to us Christ, whom we need above all things. Lord, may your spirit convince us of this fact, of this truth. Lord, may you help us to respond with humility and repentance, and faith as we recognize where we need to make much of you in our lives. As we recognize you are to be honored above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text will teach us this morning that the gospel advances when we treasure Christ above all else. In this passage, Paul turns his focus to his uncertain future. He's unsure of how his trial will turn out. Now his language is very confident. But I think we're supposed to see this as Paul is counseling his heart. As he's just rehearsed how God is sovereign in his present circumstances. Even though he's in prison, he's just as confident in God's sovereignty in the future. He shares with the Philippians his mindset as he works out which result he would rather have occur. And what Paul is doing is he's intentionally letting the Philippians overhear his reasoning, this personal conversation within his own mind in order to demonstrate how a Christ-centered focus reshapes his view of life, his view of death, his view of service to others. Our text this morning divides into two sections. First, in verses 18 through 21, Paul demonstrates his confidence for how his life will turn out That confidence is dependent on his pursuit of Christ. Second, in verses 22 through 26, he demonstrates that his view of Christ motivates then his service for others. So first, treasuring Christ above all else enables perseverance to the very end. 
Now, Paul's joy rests in knowing that this situation will turn out ultimately for his deliverance. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance in verse 19. The word this describes or refers to his current situation. The whole set of circumstances that he's just described in verses 12 through 18. His future anticipated joy rests on his knowledge that God is continuing the advancement of the gospel in spite of his imprisonment. See, his ambition was to serve Christ, was to make him known. He'd been captured by Christ. And he's saying, I don't have to worry that because I am in chains, that I'm not able to fulfill this God-given mission. He says, I've been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles even before birth. His mindset continues to be confident in God's sovereign ability to overcome all obstacles. And again, we rehearse that obstacles are turned into gospel opportunities in the hands of our sovereign God. And here's the point of these first few verses of our text. Paul is confident that when he stands before Christ, he will be vindicated. No matter what the court of Rome or public opinion concludes about him. He has been faithful. He's persevered through suffering. He's confident that he's honored the Lord through his life, through his sufferings. And therefore he can rejoice no matter what happens to him temporally. If he's released, if he dies, he has honored Christ. He stayed on mission. Can we say the same? Do we look back over our lives and say, I have been on mission? How are we using the talent, treasure, and time that God has given to us? That very short portion at the beginning of our rope. But notice that Paul's confidence is not self-confidence. I think it's a tendency for us to see Paul as this super Christian. As this guy, this Christian, this spiritual man that we can't attain to or sometimes we can't even relate with. We often tend to see others as being dependent on Paul. That he's some kind of super believer that never experiences fear or doubt or anxiety. That he's without struggle or without need. But that's not what he demonstrates here at all. He's dependent on fellow believers and on the spirit of Christ to enable him for faithful service. It's clear from other letters that he's written that he's constantly conscious of his own weakness and need. He very candidly asks for the prayers of others to assist and support him in ministry and we see that again here. Paul's reiterating this vital point that believers, all of us, are dependent on each other's prayers to remain faithful in life. This is such an important point for a church family, for a body of believers covenanting together to commit themselves to again and again. Did you see what he says there in verse 19? I know that through your prayers... 
If Paul finds confidence to persevere through the prayers of fellow believers, if he expects them to be praying for him, if he's intending for them to continue to intercede for him, certainly you and I need the prayer support of our church family as well. We need to be praying for one another, not just for physical needs. That's not only what Paul is thinking about here. More importantly, he's thinking about his perseverance in the faith in spite of obstacles. He needs their help. It's made clear here in that second phrase. My present situation will result in vindication before God through the help or supply or provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And notice, it's amazing here that Paul is telling us all three members of the Trinity are present in this work. Together, they who began a good work in him will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is expressing dependence on his sovereign triune God. The Father answers the prayers of his people for continued enablement of the spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't you wish that's what your brothers and sisters were praying for you? And God includes us in that work. He wants to call us into that work together. He uses the prayers of his people as the conduit of God's spirit to empower our perseverance in the faith. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows we need the help of his spirit and the prayers of his people. What motivation for us to be praying for one another. To be praying like this for one another. What a privilege that God chooses to use your prayers and mine as a means of supplying us with strength to faithfully walk this Christian life. Doesn't that raise our view of prayer for each other? Doesn't that raise the importance, the urgency? What joy and partnership in the growth of others are you missing out on when you forget to pray? Or when you forget to prioritize prayer for fellow believers. Could I encourage you to start with your life group? Could I encourage you to use that simple church app or talk to somebody in the office and say, could you print me out a list of our members? Paul continues to express his confidence that he will not be at all ashamed when he meets Christ. Now, is it possible that Paul has in his mind Jesus' words from Mark 8, 38 about what it means to follow him? Jesus says in that verse, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Paul's saying, I have not been ashamed of you, so I'm confident that you will not be ashamed of me. He's committed himself to honor Christ in all things, whether in life or death. Christ is his treasure. Christ's mission is Paul's mission. And he says Christ will be honored. It's in the passive voice, meaning that God is the one underneath the foundation of this commitment. It's what we'd call a divine passive. God is actually working this out as Paul commits himself to doing what God has called him to do. He's not run his race in vain. 
Paul wants others to be able to see Christ in him to the degree that they recognize the greatness of Jesus Christ. Christ will be honored in my body. This is so clearly on display through Paul's response to the hardships of life. That's where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? Is this our passion? That others would see Christ in us. Even in a culture in the South where everybody says they're positively inclined to Jesus, or most people do. But do they follow him? Is he making a difference in their life, in their behavior, in their mindset, like we see here of Paul? Can your spouse see that Christ is your passion? Or are you treasuring something of far lesser value? Can your children see what you treasure over what you say you treasure? Can your friends? How about when you face struggles and hardships? What do they see revealed then? We're so easily frustrated when things don't work out according to our plans or our expectations. When we recognize how little control we have in this life. What does that show about our hearts? Who does that show us is the priority? Let's be clear to note that Paul, again, is not saying he produces this kind of steadfast confidence himself. It comes from God working in him through the power of the Spirit and the prayer support of God's people. We need help with this, don't we? I do. We now come to that verse we know so well. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We know it well. But we often have a hard time applying it daily, don't we? For Paul, life is consumed with Christ. What does this look like for him? He'll say in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, that I may know him. Now, I want to be very clear. We've talked about this before. But this knowing him is not filling his mind with more facts about him. Paul's a master of the law. He knows the word of God. He wants to know him. It's personal. It means continuing to learn what he's like. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. He understands what Jesus said in Mark 8 that to follow him was to die to self. And he continues, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that vindication, that perseverance he's already talked about. Not that I've already attained or am already perfect, but I press on. I have to keep going. I have to keep serving. I have to keep following and proclaiming Christ. And he tells us why. Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. means continuing to learn what our Christ is like and meditate on what he's done for you. That's how we grow in this kind of passion. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that this sentence is not only a statement of the apostle's true experience, but it is also a standard of judgment which confronts us with the most thorough test of our Christian faith we will ever encounter. Every person who professes Christ as Savior must grapple with the question, can I honestly say, for me to live is Christ? 
If I can say yes, then I've also answered that fundamental question. What about death and what lies beyond? It will be gain for me. So right now, based on your priorities in life, how would you fill in the blank? For me to live is what? For me to live is retirement. For me to live is leisure. For me to live is family. To live is academic success. To live is ministry. What drives you? What do you value most? Not just in word, but in actual practice, in deed. What do you spend the most of your time thinking about, planning for, dreaming of? Now consider how difficult it is to face death if Christ is not a person's treasure. Think of how this works out. If for me to live is relationships, then death is a great, great, severe loss. If for me to live is popularity, acceptance, or affirmation, then death is loss. I've not set my hope on how Christ thinks of me. If my tight-knit family is my life, then death is separation and agonizing loss. If for me life is pleasure or financial stability, then death is great loss. But making Christ our focus is an incredibly freeing way to live. When honoring Christ is my ultimate ambition, I'm no longer concerned. I'm no longer overwhelmed or oppressed by what other people think about me. I'm not worried that others accept me or befriend me or value me because my mission and values and priority and identity are bound up with Christ. My anxieties melt away when Christ's honor is my chief concern. Do you see how freeing this is? Do you see how helpful this is and liberating it would be for you? See how it gives Paul joy. Even while he's in chains, this is the mindset this text offers to us. Treasuring Christ not only enables perseverance and motivates sacrificial service for others, treasuring Christ above all else motivates sacrificial service. Now Paul is carrying on something that's a little bit unusual in his letters. He's having this hypothetical conversation in his mind where he's wrestling and arguing about two choices that he could make. In verse 22, we read, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's one option. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, Paul's not saying that he truly has a choice to make, as if he can decide whether he gets out of prison or not. That's not what's happening. This is a conversation. He's wrestling with his priorities. What would he like to see happen? God's clearly in charge of whether he's set free or not, or his life whether it's to quickly come to an end. But he's explaining his mindset and he wants the Philippians to hear this wrestling, this discussion. Now, according to Paul's reasoning, the Christian is in the ultimate win-win situation, isn't he? If I live on, I have the opportunity for continued God-glorifying service for Christ. But also the Christian can conclude, if I die, the worst thing that often we think could happen to me, I actually get to see Christ face 
to face. The worst thing that can happen to us physically, but it actually results in the very best thing possible. Now compare the rich fool I mentioned at the beginning with the story of the martyrs who even gladly face their deaths because they faithfully laid up treasure in heaven. During the last four years of the reign of Bloody Mary in England, at least 288 people were burned at the stake because they refused to give up their Protestant beliefs, their hold of Christ, and submit to Mary's Catholicism. These faithful martyrs viewed their deaths as a means, their final means of exalting Christ in this life. The first to die was a godly pastor named John Rogers. He'd not been allowed to see his family while he was held in prison. On his way to execution, his wife and ten children stood by the road. He was hardly allowed to stop and say farewell. As he marched to the stake, he calmly repeated Psalm 51. The French ambassador who witnessed the execution wrote that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. It was, he was, wasn't he? He was. He would be with the bridegroom in just moments. The third reformer to die, Roland Taylor, was sent from London to the town where he'd been pastoring to be burned in front of his former church members. When he got within two miles of the town, the sheriff asked him how he felt. He replied, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for now I am almost home. I lack but just two hurdles to go over, and I am even at my father's house. As his church members lined the streets and greeted him with tears and lamentations, He repeatedly said, I have preached to you God's word and truth and have come to you this day to seal it with my blood. So we see to die in Christ is to instantly be with Christ. That's the greatest benefit we can have. That shapes how we view death entirely. In this text, Paul demonstrates when we die, we enter the presence of our Lord. This is the Christian's great expectation and joy that Christ's resurrection and defeat of death makes our deaths nothing to be feared. When John Payton surrendered to God's direction to go to the New Hebrides as a missionary, almost everyone thought it was strange and foolish that such a young man would give his life for the salvation of a very cruel, a cruel people who are known for cannibalism. One old gentleman said to him, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. Mr. Payton replied, sir, your own future is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. Do you see how Christ shapes our mindset about death? Secondly, to die in Christ means to gain more than just heaven. This is an important point to focus on, to think carefully about. 
The last phrase in verse 23 can be literally translated with three superlatives. It's not good English, but it's, it's demonstrating how Paul is viewing this. He says to be with Christ is much more better. One commentator explains it's almost as if Paul is just stumbling over his words to express the surpassing value of being with Christ. He just has to keep stacking the superlatives. Now, while we know there are many wonderful things that God tells us heaven will be like, the believer who knows Christ and lives for him is most eager to see him. For the true believer, that's the focus of eternity. I'm not saying there aren't other rewards and benefits, but for the true believer, that is the reward of eternity. When you evaluate what you are looking forward to most about eternity, if Jesus is not your focus, if there's no thought at all of seeing him, of thanking him, of worshiping him, perhaps you are only Christian in name only. We can even, in our sin-sick hearts, make heaven about us. And that's not what it is. The majority of religions have some view of heaven that's a place of blessing and peace and rewards that we think of like rewards on this earth. But only the gospel gives us this focus that we actually get to be reunited with Jesus himself. That's the reward of heaven. Maybe that's a new thought to you. Is it possible? Is it possible? that you may be aiming at heaven and missing Christ entirely. It's certainly a danger for some. If you don't know him, if you're unwilling to submit to him, to follow him, to pursue him in this life, if you're only thinking he's your ticket to heaven, you don't want him, you want what only he will give you. Maybe, maybe you don't know him. If that's you, turn to him this morning. Turn to him in repentance and faith. And you will receive this confidence that when you die, you will meet him and be with him in perfect fellowship. Christ is the reward of heaven. Thirdly, to live is Christ means to choose what is best for others. Notice his mindset again. If the choice were left up to him, he would choose to depart and be with Christ. We understand that would be much better. This isn't some weird death wish. This isn't some view that life is bad, the physical is bad, and the spiritual is good. No, it's not that at all. It's that his value is truly Christ. But notice how he discusses this. He sets aside his own desire, his own personal longings. That word desire there is the same word that is for lust. He has strong yearnings for Jesus Christ and being with him. He sets aside his own desires for the sake of the growth of fellow believers. He says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Here again, he's modeling what it means to look to the interests of others that we'll see at the beginning of chapter two. 
Life is not about Paul. It's first about Christ and then serving Christ's people. Progress in the Christian life comes from faith in the person and work of Christ that both deepens and broadens to affect every area of our lives. Progress is not so much about seeking to measure the quantity of our faith as much as it is growing in the awareness of the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one who forgives us of our sin who continues to pursue us through his spirit, even when we're unfaithful and blind and foolish and sinful. And the one who transforms us more and more into his image. Progress means my value of him is growing and expanding and deepening. Such a growing faith produces a deepening joy and satisfaction and stability in Christ, in his promises and a stability that cannot be shaken by the changing circumstances of life. Is this what it means to follow Christ for you? The progress and joy of the faith of fellow believers. Who are you serving? Who are you praying for that they would progress And have joy in their faith. How are you helping them? If the Lord allows us more time in this life. Then we are to have the same goal as Paul does here. There is no retirement age. There is no bottom age. Where a young person can't invest in the health and growth of other believers. If you're a believer, young or old. This is our job. To encourage others to grow. And bring joy to their lives. This is what our lives are really for. This is what will go on with us into the next life. It's not about a more fulfilling career, better grades, the perfect spouse to make you happy, a stable bank account or family and friends that love you and affirm you and value you. What is your life really all about? What do you treasure most? If it's Christ, then like Paul, invest in the spiritual growth of others. Paul's demonstrating here what we see of Jesus in chapter 2. To love God means to humbly, self-sacrificially love and serve God's people. Does your life encourage others to grow and to rejoice? So this text, very simply, challenges us. It challenges us all. If we're honest, thoughtful believers and we evaluate our lives and measure it according to the text, we all must grow in this way. Treasure Christ above all else. Just by Paul's focus thus far in the letter, we see his gaze is fixed on Christ. Already he's referred to Christ now 17 times. So how do we grow in treasuring Christ like this? We have to remember the foundation of our relationship. It's about growing in our value, growing in our esteem, growing in our understanding of the worth of Jesus. It's marveling again at his grace. Paul says in 3.12 that Christ has made him his own. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we must glorify God in our bodies, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says the love of Christ, Christ's love for me, compels me. It controls me. So treasuring Christ as a response to the person and work of our Savior is truly the theme of Paul's life and should be our aim as well. Now, why are believers called to devote their lives to Christ? Because we have to acknowledge we owe everything, absolutely everything spiritually to him. The devotion of our entire lives to the service of Christ is our reasonable acts of worship as we respond in gratitude for his infinitely valuable sacrifice. Why treasure Christ above all else? Because we must acknowledge that Christ is now our master and Lord. Because he's rescued us. And because of that, we follow him as our king. We submit to his rule in our lives. We trust him that he's a good and gracious king that only ever works for our good and his glory. Even if right now that looks like hardship. We no longer sit on the throne of our hearts. And that's the real battle, isn't it? We belong to the Lord and can no longer live for self. There's no place for a believer with one hand holding on to Christ and one hand holding on to this world. If you understand what he's done for you, you die to self and live to him. Why treasure Christ? Because we recognize that everything of true and lasting value on that infinite line is found in him. It can't be found in the things of this world. And those things that once were so attractive, we thought were so valuable, should be our priority, lose their attractiveness when compared to knowing him. We confess in conclusion with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, were this whole earth mine to obtain, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, we confess that Christ is worthy of our praise, of our adoration, of our trust, of our confidence, of our true hope. And yet, as those who are still surrounded by sin in their own hearts, the presence of sin has not yet been done away with. Lord, we confess that we often so easily fix our eyes on the things of this earth. But help us look at Jesus. Help us see his worth. Help us understand afresh his sacrifice, his love, his mercy, that he took God's judgment for us that he rescued us from ourselves and our sin, and may we treasure him. Lord, we need your help. 
Our hearts are small. Our eyes are filled with the things of this earth day in and day out. Our hearts are deceitful. We believe that the things of this life, whether it's a claim or financial status or success or achievement is what we were made for. That it will make us satisfied. But that is a lie. May we believe and live to treasure Christ above all else. In his name we pray. Amen. What an incredible gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. Christ is the reward of heaven that we heard this morning. So with every breath, we long to follow Jesus. Let's sing in response to what we've heard this morning. Let's stand as we sing.
God, Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. And we come to you begging you to keep our eyes fixed on him. No matter what we're facing, no matter what this week holds, we need our eyes fixed on you. Rescue us, we pray, from our own failings, from the destructiveness of selfishness, of pride of empty, wasted living. You've given us all and all in Christ. He is our living hope, our gracious Redeemer, our glorious King, our almighty Lord. And so it's in his name we pray all these things, gladly committing ourselves for his sake to live all of life under his Lordship this week with your help. Amen.